Hello, and welcome back to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. This episode, we have a special edition of the News Digest. But first, I'm sitting down with Simon McRory, who joins us to discuss his new book, Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, The Imperative of Teams. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the Event Lab podcast. Thank you. Today we're joined by Simon McGrory, founder and CEO of The Odd Company and author of Wake Up and Smell the Coffee. Indeed. So, could you tell people a little bit about what Waking Up and Smelling the Coffee is all about? Well, the full title of the book is Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, The Imperative of Teams. And my company, The Odd Company, uh, specialises in facilitating teams, particularly at the senior level. And we've developed a, a cloud-based platform to allow teams to self-manage their reflection and their development and to build their effectiveness over time by continuous use of the product. The book is actually all about the experiences I've had working with teams across the globe, from the US to, to Africa to the Middle East to, to Ireland and the UK, obviously, where I'm based today. First, I was kind of wondering a little bit about sort of what inspired you to, to write the book from your experiences with teams everywhere. Well, I've, I've, as I say, I've worked with teams for probably 20 years now, and um, Teamwork had gone off the agenda for many organisations, and yet 90% of what we do in the workplace is happening through collaborative effort, probably more than 90%. In fact, I very seldom find anybody who's an individual contributor these days. So then, quite evidently, teamwork is really, really critical to the organisation. It's the single most important form of output uh, generated in an organisation, and yet organisations don't have strategies for teams. They take a very ad hoc approach to teams. They assume that everybody knows how to work in a team. They assume that if you put a group of people together in a corner and call them a team, they'll work as a team. Uh, and then there are all sorts of assumptions about performance about teams and that they're more very effective and they're better than people working on their own. And yes, that's very true. But unfortunately, experience tells us that only probably 10% of teams are actually high performing. Uh, about 40% are so dysfunctional they should actually be disbanded. They're just a very bad experience for anybody associated with them, which means about 50% are just barely kind of ticking along. And that's that's pretty pretty critical from an organization's point of view. This is how you're getting your output, and yet this is what you're prepared to put up with, only 10% high-performing. We should have them all high-performing. And actually, that's quite possible. If there's an approach to teamwork that is managed by the teams themselves, this is not about outsiders crawling all over them. This is not about consultants being all over the organization telling people what to do. This is allowing teams space to reflect and determine for themselves what's the best way to move forward and improve their own effectiveness. And I can guarantee you every single team will improve themselves if they're given the time to think about how they do what they do rather than what they do. I mean, were, were there any specific specific examples of teams that you saw that were perhaps in that 40% that were failing to produce that kind of kicked the whole thing off for you? Well, I'll be quite honest with you. The vast majority of the time that I'm invited in to work with a team, it's because they're failing. And that's why they bring me in in the first place. And of course, then the first thing that comes up on the agenda is, is what you do fun. Whenever you mention teams and team development, people start to talk about fun immediately. And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. These people need a dose of reality. They need to work hard. They need to work in a consistent way to develop the performance that they need. They need to address the issues, not spend some day out on the side of a mountain detached from reality, working out certain exercises that are designed to be successful in the first instance, by the way, anyway, and have no no relevance whatsoever to the workplace. And that's expected to develop them into a critical team if you do that once a year. Nonsense. Total nonsense. <laughs> We've seen uh, quite a few gripes of team building that's come up in uh, a couple of the News Digest episodes. It seems everyone has a, 
no one enjoys those team outing days. Nobody, and this is the point, nobody enjoys them. And I can never understand, what is the benefit of falling backwards into somebody's arms? And put it down on paper that you've done a team building day, the team must be improving. To me, teamwork is actually happening in the workplace. It happens in the team day to day. The, the, the really effective team, the high performing team will pay attention to issues like goal clarity, planning, evaluation, the composition of the team, whether they have the skills to do the job, constantly understanding how, what they're doing, where they're at, how they need to go to the next stage. And they will engage every person on that team in what's happening. It's not about one person dictating all. Many leaders are, unfortunately, can be like this. They want to do it all themselves. So then, therefore, the team are just a group of spectators. So it is about getting that environment created for the team. And it doesn't matter what team it is, from the CEO and his or her team, right down to the most junior team in the organisation. They all have to engage. They all have to be encouraged to engage. And that's a leadership responsibility. I think, I think oh, first one to talk about was kind of how you get that kind of the key engagement for every team member when perhaps your team is an irregular team. To me, an event team in that situation is what I would term a project team. So it's been brought together to do a particular task. Now, the first thing that's really critical in that situation is that whoever the leader is, and very often in a project team, it's not the most senior person in the organisation or in the hierarchy that assumes the leadership. So for me, it's really important that whoever is the leader is given, first of all, a very good brief by the organisation as what's required, but that they clearly articulate what the goals are for this particular event. If it's an event, um, for example, to develop sales, well, then it should be all about selling. If it's an event to develop information and relationships with customers, well, then the event will be designed to deliver that particular uh, outcome. But everybody must be very clear as to what actually is happening here. Now, once you've got a very clear set of goals, and it has to be very clear, a timeline, so you know when this has to be achieved by, and that means you have key milestones that you can measure your progress as you move along, then you can decide who should be on the team. Then you can decide what kind of experience you need on the team. Then you select on that basis. So not everybody who would put themselves forward for the project would necessarily be accepted. You've got to have a, 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 some form of selection criteria that says we need various different people with different skills to do the following tasks. Now, once those people are selected, you allocate the roles in the context of the goals that have been actually determined. So if, if it's somebody who's going to have to look after venues and go find the venue, that's somebody with maybe expertise in that in the past and that's their role and that's their job and they go and they do that and nobody else interferes in that. They can call on the others for support, but they, that's their task and they get it done. And similarly with all the other tasks that are involved. So you, you work your way through all of these things, uh, understanding how you want to create the team in terms of the right people with the right set of skills, with the right roles to deliver the goals that you have determined clearly in the first place with a good plan behind it that you can evaluate and know are we on or are we off after that the leader has a really really critical role in this particular environment because the project team is being brought from lots of different parts of the organization so they're working you've got to remember they have other jobs to do as well so this won't be their full-time job so one of the first things you've got to do is to consider with them individually what are your functional commitments versus what are you going to be your project commitments and how are you going to manage those probably one of the biggest failings in cross-functional teams is the failure to manage the smaller contributors and to accommodate them effectively because those smaller contributors, whilst they're not a big impact on the project overall, that one thing that they have to do, if it's not done, can actually bring the entire project down and that's often overlooked. You've got to have a very different, flexible style about you as a leader in a project team to get the best out of that team. You've got to recognise that people will be coming to you from all sorts of different environments, different levels, and you've got to be able to flex to meet their demands. So not everybody is going to know what to do, so some people need direction. Other people will need encouragement. Other people will need delegation. Just tell them what needs to be done and stand back. So as a good leader will know the difference between the two and won't adopt one style. They'll be flexible. They'll mix their styles around. That will help the organiser, uh, the team uh, to, to, to perform. And then ultimately, the most, I suppose, the most important part for me in this team 
is the capacity for the leader to develop what I call a psychologically safe environment. And this is where anybody can say whatever's on their mind, that nobody's afraid to ask the question because it looks too obvious and make the assumption that everybody else knows the answer. I look stupid if I ask the question. This is what we call overlooking the bleeding obvious, which happens quite a lot. This is about teams being properly engaged where they can say what needs to be said, bring up the ideas, have conflict, which is really important in the team because that's the source of innovation. People with different ideas. If you don't have that, you've got nothing. In fact, if you don't have conflict, you better start up some because that team's going nowhere. What a boring place to work anyway if there's no conflict. The fact that you can speak up, you can be heard, that you know that what you're saying is valued contribution. And if, if what you're saying isn't relevant or can't be accommodated, but that said, look, we don't accept every idea. But then there's a discussion as to why that's not going forward. And it just You don't just shoot people down. And you create that environment where if I do come up with ideas, my ideas are not stolen by somebody else. You give credit where credit is due. You give opportunity to people to talk about their own performance within that team. So you create environments for a period of reflection at regular intervals throughout the life cycle of the team for the people to talk about how they're doing what they're doing, not just what they're doing. Both are important, but they're equally important. I think it's fascinating to hear what you say because it is wonderful advice that I think the events industry needs to hear. We con- we're constantly having conversations about uh, the stress and the impact it can have on people working in the industry. I mean, the uh, I think it's the third most stressful industry. We're, we're seeing lots of stats, and so... Uh, I think it's it's exactly important, as you say, to have a space where people can speak up about the ideas that they want to have, to feel yeah. comfortable having conflict a conflict of ideas to drive innovation, and to say the thing that perhaps you know you think is the stupid idea, but is the common sense thing that needs to be said. And it's so often people are afraid to say it. I mean, genuinely, you'd be surprised. Even at the most senior levels in organisations, I see this happening where the obvious is not being stated because somebody, everybody thinks everybody knows the answer, but nobody actually does know the answer. Um, and there's also this idea that conflict is anatomate to teams and that harmony is essential. Well, actually, conflict is essential and harmony is nice to have, but it's not essential, right? Okay. It's the conflict that creates the innovation. If I have a difference of opinion with you, if I challenge you on a particular situation, if I throw out a different idea and an approach to a particular project end, That's a good debate to have because we will probably between us come up with a third way, which is the best way to do it or the most effective way or the most efficient way. So it is important to create that opportunity for conflict to be in the team, but it's how you manage conflict is the issue, not the fact that the conflict exists. Allow conflict to get out of control and become personalised. Well, now you've got, you're you're hiding to nothing. But conflict must be encouraged and there must be that safe environment where we can have the debate and the discussion. And it's okay. It's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's such a crucial part of developing a successful team. Now, I wondered if you sort of had the advice about how teams can better communicate sort of when they're perhaps not working adjacent to each other. If they're not, because it's an ad hoc team, they might not be sitting next to each other. They might not see each other as often because they're working across the company. Well, you're you're kind of venturing into the space of what we term the virtual team. Um, And they're becoming much more common in the world of work. In fact, you know, they're being adopted at an exponential rate. And not just uh, within within buildings in, in the kind of team situation that you're speaking about, but also internationally. You can have a team comprised of people from America, Japan, Australia and Ireland all working together and using electronic means to communicate. So the virtual team is defined by its its communication methodology and means. And this can be, you know, can be very effectively used in the in the project team that's of say for example designing event as you were t- you're speaking about. The important thing about the deployment of technology in that situation is to ensure that you're deploying the right technology in sufficient amounts for what needs to be done. There has been a tendency to go over the top and get the best of everything. There's been a tendency to implement technology that some of the team are quite comfortable with, but maybe others are not. 
So in, 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 in our world today, particularly with the millennial generation and uh, Generation Z coming in, into the workforce today, they're very comfortable with, with social media platforms, very comfortable with communicating in that manner, very comfortable communicating in text speak. But what about the person who's in their 40s or 50s who's actually on that team, who's not that comfortable doing it? Or you have people who are working from home on occasions. And, uh, and again, a famous case where, where, where people put in technology that's fantastic, the top of the range, and say we're making everything available to you as our virtual team. Nobody thinks about the broadband upspeed from, from, from the domestic ranges, which doesn't and can't access the technology that's being deployed. Or you can download files, but you can't upload anything because you're, you know, I think I, I went to upload some files to my cloud from home recently. Um, it was a new computer I was actually working on and uh, it took seven days, right? Seven days. If I'd done that in the office, it would have taken about maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. But that's, the, they're the kind of things that you need to be conscious of when you're using technology with, uh, with, with, with any team for communication purposes. Make sure it's fit for purpose. Make sure it's what it is you need and it's not overly complicated. Make sure that it is everybody on the team knows how to use it. Because if you don't, you will have whole parts of the team excluded from the team because they can't participate with the technology. Yeah, no, I think I was going to pick up what you mentioned about the people being more comfortable with social media. I mean, we're seeing kind of the social media way of communicating bleed into team communications and, and business communications as a as perhaps email is beginning to go out, and you see things like Slack. We see lots, lots of companies using Skype uh, as the kind of the default intercompany communication. Um, but I think sometimes this can almost create an overload of communication. Sometimes you can have so many that it becomes just too overwhelming to communicate, even though it is almost instantaneous. Look, it's like anything else. As part of the setup of a project, if you're going to use technology as, as a principal element of your communication, you need rules of engagement what's acceptable, what kind of information should be translated or, or transferred across this technology platform, what requires face-to-face -face communication. Um, what are the protocols for, for, for dealing with this? Because one of the things that people get very annoyed about is, is if there's an expectation that you're going to answer every single IM that I send, mm. and I don't. Um, maybe I meet you in the corridor and I say, oh, by the way, uh, in relation to that, uh, that message you sent me there yesterday, uh, the answer is, I've had people say to me afterwards, you didn't respond to my I IM. I said, but I told you in the corridor. Yes, but you didn't respond to my IM. I mean, I think, I think it's, becoming, it's becoming a thing of modern life that everyone, it's, uh, everyone expects an instant response no matter the time. We've, we've, we've sort of lost touch with that. I've left them a voicemail. I'm sure they'll respond to me by tomorrow. Everyone, you, you send a message, you expect instant responses, and that's becoming more apparent in, in, in teams. Well, I think it's just about, at the outset, determine how you want your communication process to work. What's important to have face-to-face? -face? What should be via email? What should be via Word documents? What should be via shared folders, if you're using shared folders, if you're using something like Dropbox or Google Docs or whatever you're using, make sure it's appropriate to what you're doing and what then goes where, because that's when the issues begin to become problematic, because somebody will say, well, I put that in, a, in an email to you. So no, 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 that should have gone to Dropbox. Mm. And that's where I went looking for it, and it wasn't there, so I just assumed it wasn't done. So I did it myself. So you got duplication of effort now. So it's about those protocols and creating them and making sure that everybody is understanding of them. They don't have to be exhaustive but they have to begin to create a standard against which everybody's going to work. And that, that, that works really well. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's just important for people to remember. I think, I mean, sort of related to, uh, to uh, so we hosted Event Lab last week and a lot, of the, a lot of the talk is about how AI will improve uh, both teams working in the events industry and events themselves. And so uh, one of our founders here at Hirespace, uh, Will Swannell, he suggests that the, the real benefit of AI will be it will help scrub away a lot of the the admin work the scrub work and allow people to focus on relationships and the communication and 
the team. Yes, if if the team has the environment in which those relationships can be built, if the leader is creating that psychologically safe space for people to operate in, it'll all work, absolutely. But if AI is just there to take away the, the scrub work, as you say, and correctly so, but the environment is still poisonous or the environment still doesn't allow you to speak or voice your opinion, where's the advantage? It's just more time to fight now. And that's the, that's the reality of the situation. So some of the basics have to be understood. And, you know, as we move forward, and I think this will be particularly pertinent to the event industry, the gig economy is really changing the way we operate. And people now in, in the UK, there's about 16% of the workforce is actually gigger. And th- th- doing it that way by choice, not by, 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 by need. And that's going to grow, we reckon, to about 50% within the next 10 years. Already in the US, it's 33%, and we expect that to be 50% in the, by 2022. The big challenge you have there is not only are you bringing people from across an organisation to form a project team to deliver an event, if you bring people from outside, they're only coming in for that particular event. Now, they've got a whole series of motivations that they're coming in to, 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 to meet in terms of themselves, so they want to earn money, fair enough. Mm-hmm. But they're also looking at the project and say, well, what's in this project for me that will make me a more employable person the next time out? How's my brand going to look after I've done this project? The people in the organisation have to have some way when you come in as the gigger, how do they quickly socialise you? How do they quickly get you into the norms of how they want to do things and how this project team wants to operate? How do you quickly get this person who's maybe only going to be with you for three months? Mm. You need them to be productive today, not in two months' time, which means there's only a month productivity out of them. Yeah. How do you do that? That means you have to have norms. You have to have standards for the team. You have to go clarity. You have to roll clarity. You have to have rules of engagement. The team that are there on a permanent basis or the members that are there on a more regular basis can socialise those other people coming in quickly to how we do things around here in a way that's understandable to them. And then embrace them as if they were a full-time person. Embrace them as if they're just as as important as they are as everybody else here on this team, which isn't always the case, by the way. Because here's what happens. One, you get a great return out of the gigger at that stage. But that gigger goes out and he tells everybody or she tells everybody, what a great time I had at this place. These guys really know their stuff. I mean, these guys really are on fire. They, we had a great project. It really worked well. The converse is also true. They go out and tell everybody, don't go near those guys. They're nuts. They don't know what they're doing. They couldn't find their way out of a paper bag if you gave them a scissors, right? Because they don't know how to manage themselves. They will destroy your brand as quickly as they will build your brand for you. So how you work with the giggers and how you bring them in and embrace them and socialise them to what you're doing in a short-term project, critically essential. You can't do that without planning. You can't do that without having a strategy around how you actually work teams, which takes you into a much bigger discussion that we did, we've decided not to go on to today, which is about corporate team strategy and how organisations overall holistically need to actually approach this issue of teams if they're going to get the return out of it. So you've given us so much to think about. I think there's so much there that is important for events teams to consider, and I think there's so much they can learn. I think just one last thing to ask. I mean, do you think there's a, a, a common team dysfunction? Well, I think probably the biggest dysfunction within teams or probably the single biggest challenge to teams is, and it's also a team myth, it's around the size of teams. Um, we use the term very, very generously within organisations. A group of people are called the team. The organisation's called the team. Uh, a department is called the team. And in fact, that's incorrect. They are groups. A team is seldom more than 10 people, if ever. Um, it is important that you keep the team in single digits. And here's for why. We all know that communication is really, really important in terms of having a, a team work effectively. For a team of, say, four people, five people, let's say, a team of five people, it takes 10 conversations for that team to be fully informed and connected. So that's reasonable, isn't it? 
when you get to a team of uh, 14, it takes 90 conversations. It's an exponential growth. Now, I know lots of teams of 14. Not only is there a major problem in the communication, which isn't conceivably possible to have nightly conversations to get everybody informed, which means lots of people are uninformed. You also get problems with social loafing. You get people deliberately not doing the work that needs to be done because they think somebody else is going to do it because the team is so big. You get clicks. You get people fighting. You get groups forming within the team itself, all detrimental to the effectiveness of the team. And here's the biggest one. Of all of the executive teams I've worked with over the years, and this has been confirmed by research, only 10% of the executive teams I've worked with could tell me how many people were actually on the team. Yeah, that is, that is a shocking number. Right? And that, I think that is particularly interesting. They only 10% could tell you exactly who was on the team. The rest would get into an argument. Joe's on the team. No, no, Joe's not on the team. Oh, no, he was at the meeting the other day. No, 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 he's not on the team. Oh, no, he is on the team. You think, well, is he on the team or is he not on the team, right? Because <laughs> not only do you as a team need to know, Joe needs to know, right? Yeah, if you don't know who you're communicating with, you can't communicate effectively at all. At all. So team size is a really, really critical issue in terms of working with teams. But it comes down to our definition of the term team in organisations. It might be the pedant to me. But the reality is, in most instances, let's take the HR group in a, in, a, in a company that's starting out really small and grows, becomes massive internationally. So initially, they were genuinely a team. There was five people there. And then they grew and they became 50 people. So now there was a, an, a compensation and benefits team. There was an employee relations team. There was a recruitment team, the talent management team, a training and development team. There was now five or six or seven teams in there. But they're still called the HR team. That creates as a problem for people because then there's expectations that I'm a team member with you, therefore you must share the same goals with me. But your finding comps and benefits has got nothing to do with, with employee relations. I, I don't have the same goals. I have a whole set of different challenges that I'm dealing with. They're radically different to yours. And therefore I have to be dealt with in, in terms of my team has to deal with its own issues, its own goals, its own roles, its own objectives, and it has to manage all its own areas. If you think of us as, a, as an overall team, it's not going to work. And then, as I say, this exponential problem of, of communication, which is just phenomenal. And, uh, and that, there is a formula, by the way. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I think I was, I was reading something only, only yesterday that was saying you should never have more than seven people in a meeting, and beyond that, it just becomes incredibly inefficient. Well, yeah, and I think the, the, famous, the famous example was given from Amazon, which was um, uh, if it takes more than two pizza to feed the team, it's team's too big, <laughs> which I think is reasonable, right? Which again, it brings you back to about seven, right? Yeah, but not enough meetings have pizza. <laughs> well, that's true as well, yeah, yes. <laughs> Do you have a favourite team? I don't have a favourite team, apart from my own team in my own office. I think that's probably the perfect answer. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the, on the show. Great, thank you. Thanks again to Simon for sitting down with us. If you're interested in finding out more about his book and the lessons it has to teach you, you can find a link to it in the show notes below. Now, up next, we've got a live recording from Event Lab 2018, where the News Digest team had another look at the two biggest conversations they've had this year. Hello, everyone. Can everyone, can everyone hear me? Yes. Thank, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Delighted to be here for a special live edition uh, of the Event Lab podcast. For those who don't know, this is the News Digest, and we meet fortnightly on the Event Lab podcast and discuss stories that we've seen in the news which are relevant to the world of events. Often they'll be industry, industry press, but often it will be the big, big wide world, anything that touches upon the lives of events professionals. And 
Today, we've got, we're going to discuss uh, two or three stories which were really popular when we've discussed them on the podcast, generated lots and lots of interest. We're going to be discussing three big questions. Should Marine Le Pen's invite to speak at Europe's largest tech conference have been rescinded? We will ask, would Netflix's recent staff anti-harassment policies work in the events world? And we will ask whether agencies should be paid to pitch. Now, I'd love you guys, if you have any kind of questions or you've experienced any of the things that we discussed today, uh, to contribute. So do always feel free to put up your hands and we'll try and bring you in. But without further ado, there are not many people in the events world that understand it better than our three uh, esteemed panelists today. Uh, so I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, uh, starting with Martin over at the end. Yeah, hello everyone. I'm Martin Fullard and I am the editor at Conference News Magazine, a magazine to which I'm sure you are all subscribed. No? Well, I'll be coming around later on with an iPad to nick your email addresses off you. I'm uh, Sam Allen. I'm a business consultant and coach. Um, I spent five years working in this spectacular venue, so this is the first time I've actually been on stage at a venue I was selling for four and a half years, so really excited to be here. And I'm Richard Groves, director of Smart Group, which operates Battersea Evolution, a huge semi-permanent structure in Battersea Park, owns moving venue caterers and, and an event management and venue management company. Great. Thank you to our panel. So let's get straight into it. So this is a story that I think I first saw in conference news, and it's Marine Le Pen, the French far-right leader, had been due to speak at the Web Summit in Lisbon, which is kind of Europe's largest uh, tech conference. And following a massive online backlash uh, on social media, the show's organizers, the organizer of the Web Summit, decided to withdraw her invitation to speak. And they said, based on advice we have received on the large reaction overnight, Marine Le Pen's presence is disrespectful, in particular to our host country. Now, we thought this was interesting because it kind of touches on free speech in events and on how venues and events organizers should approach divisive topics and divisive people. So, Richard, did the organizers of the Web Summit make the right decision here? The problem with the event organizers have to wrestle with, and I will answer the question, um, is are they the creators of um, morality, good taste, anybody's political um, views? And if they are, then that opens up a very, very large question about where venues actually do sit and event, and, and event management companies sit in the spectrum of what, you, what they want to put on for the public and the industry to see. I think that they should be fearless in saying, if this person has got something interesting to say, we might not like everything she stands for, we might not like the total message, but it, it, there, she has a point, it's something that's relevant to the people coming to this conference, so therefore, we should give her the platform to speak. Hi, Sam Martin, do you agree? Well, I think the biggest mistake you could make is to think that there's just a right or wrong answer. There, there, there isn't. Uh, it's, I've, it's a similar situation with an actual history museum that we, we could touch on in a moment. But essentially, every brand has the right to decide who it's associated with. And if she's not the right fit for their brand, of course, then, of course, you know, we move her along. But, yeah, you're absolutely right what you say. Who, who is the venue to decide what's right and what's wrong? While, you know, a lot of people were 
campaigning against that and they weren't happy with it, a lot of people on the other side felt aggrieved that that was an encroachment into their beliefs. I mean, whether we like it or not is irrelevant, but no, you can't, you can't silence free speech, it's ridiculous. I guess it's kind of, kind of, kind of where, where do you draw the line? So Marine Le Pen, obviously very unpopular in many quarters, but has plenty of, of, of followers in France. Um, I mean, take someone like Donald Trump. Hands up if you're a, a Donald, Donald Trump fan in the audience. I don't believe <laughs> so, so not so many, but we, we, we discussed Donald Trump was in London recently, and should the events industry kind of roll out the red carpet for, uh, for Donald Trump? I guess, Sam, where do you kind of draw the line with, uh, with this kind of content? I think there's a couple of things there, to be honest with you. I think, number one, you've got to understand your participants in your event. So, hands up who's an event organiser here. Yeah. We've got to respond to our participants and our delegates. That was about three quarters of the room. Um, and thanks to the invention of that wonderful thing called social media, we don't have any choice but to respond to those participants. These are people who are paying. You've got 70,000 people attending your event. And if a large majority of them are against the content that you're producing, you're going to have a problem, which is a massive hole in your finances. And we're putting on events to make a profit at the end of the day. So there is a business case around it. Yes, there's a discussion around rigorous debate. And I think we have moved a little bit too much to the world where we, we seem to not encourage that so much anymore. And I put praise on the organizations that do stand up in here and let rigorous debate happen. We're not going to get it right. I completely agree with Marty, which is unusual for us on a podcast. We never agree. But today, I'm in agreement. But from a venue perspective, and I don't know how many venues are in the audience, I think that venues get a hard time in terms of this. Mm. I think that the Natural History yeah. Museum got an absolute slating. I don't know. Did you hear the story on The Guardian about the Saudi Arabia embassy hosting an event and The Guardian absolutely slating it? It'll be on our site. We'll share that somehow we'll share that, yeah. um, and the venue was blamed for not pulling this event now if that event was held in a tent would the tent manufacturer be blamed for hosting that event so I do think that there's a balance and I think as an industry we need to stand up and be be a voice for our venues who are putting on events very uh, very specifically for raising funds like they are for the museum and are getting a slating when it's actually not their fault the same thing happened at the Design Museum um, a few weeks ago. There was a, uh, an, ex uh, an exhibit um, going on there that had lots of different artists, lots of different genres going on in the same building. And uh, as part of the events team bookings for that week, they took a, uh, a booking from, I think it was a petroleum company. And the artists all said this was disrespectful for the art that they put into the building. They didn't appreciate it, um, and they were going to start pulling their art out. And the museum said, well, I'm terribly sorry. You know, there are different areas in, in our business. There's the curatorial art side of it. There's the um, exhibits. And then there's the event side, which makes the rest of it run. So if you can't buy a cup of coffee at the Design Museum and they, they can't let it out in the evening, who's going to replace that funding? And exactly the same with the Natural History Museum, V&A, you know, all the venues that have had all their funding mm -hmm. cut by um, the government by at least 20% in the last five years, where are they supposed to get their money from? And yes, the Saudis, not a great week to have the Saudis in your building, Absolutely admittedly, not. because they're not necessarily everybody's um, flavor of the month. Great news feeds at the moment, but it's it, you know, not necessarily you book it this week. But that was probably booked three months ago. Um, Yemen has been going on for three years. It's a booking into the venue. Should they have taken it three months ago, knowing that Yemen has still been going on? Or it's the Saudi embassy in London, um, one of our 
close partners, as, as the government keeps saying, so therefore it should be in the building. Money versus morality, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, aren't yeah, you, yeah. these poor venues? Money versus morality. Has anyone here hosted any events with kind of controversial content or, or things that some event guests have, have not been happy with? Oh, every event has an event guest that's not happy, <laughs> let's be honest. Do you get one? Normally you're lucky. The, that's a successful yeah. event. For Normally organizers. the lose or the temperature of the coffee. Great. So money versus morals. And I, I guess we probably conclude that to say that you know venues have a you know, venues. There's a commercial need to protect their commercial interests, and it's, it's not always as black and white as as it seems. Yeah. Um, on which point I wanted to, to, to come to this uh, uh, this second story, which uh, which generated a lot of uh, kind of feedback when we discussed it on the podcast last time. And this was, I think this is particularly interesting because in the events, while so many kind of new businesses and entrepreneurialism and, uh, and lots of kind of businesses thinking about workplace culture and how they create working environments that allow event professionals to thrive and enjoy their, enjoy their roles. And what this was, was Netflix's new uh, anti-harassment uh, policy uh, at work. I don't know if anyone, if anyone saw this. Um, but new, uh, new policy means at Netflix, no looking at any other employee for longer than five seconds, no lingering hugs, no flirting, no asking for a colleague's phone number. And you look at the front page of the BBC today, and it's talking about uh, you know, how kind of street harassment is, is relentless at the moment for, for women and girls. Would this kind of policy work in the events industry? What do you, what, what do you guys think? I'll go first. It's a tricky one. Uh, of course, you know, the events industry has to do all it can to curb, you know, that sort of menacing behaviour. No one should be made to feel that they're being sexualised or, you know, made to feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. Uh, my, my worry about it is how can such a thing be policed across, across the, the spectrum? I mean, to my mind, the easy solution would be for industry associations to which our stakeholders, venues, agency are affiliated to publish codes of conduct, to maybe offer some sort of certification and you have to adhere to, to those stringent HR rules. Mm. I think maybe you know Netflix goes a bit too far staring at someone for five minutes. I mean, I often go five into daydreams. Five seconds, that's, yeah, five minutes. Five minutes really probably weird. would be a bit That's probably weird. Uh, but I mean, you know, that, is, that can be subjective. I think that's perhaps a bit too far, but a solid policy and code of conduct published by the industry associations is probably a solid place to start. But then again, how is that policed to the many agencies and venues who maybe aren't affiliated to these, to these industry associations? So there's another mystery that needs solving. So I wouldn't have an answer, but I certainly think that the industry associations could start by publishing codes of conduct to their respective uh, members. Events is a very kind of tactile world, isn't it? It's yeah. all about human interaction. And does that mean, you know, does that mean it is even more important or, or, or less? Well, it's, it is a very tactile business. And it, it might not necessarily be a good idea that it's as, as tactile as it has been in the past. We are a creative business. Um, there is a lot of emotion, a lot of subjectivity. Um, and we, we like to create things that people involve themselves with. And one of the um, sales tools you use is to try and engage with the person you're you're selling to and make sure that they understand what you're trying to sell them and five seconds isn't particularly long to get eye contact with someone if you're selling something you're selling a concept you want them to you want to get some feedback from them um, yes it's quite a huggy business sometimes I think that is probably not as much as it used to be um, and I think you just have to be 
very aware of people's comfort and people's um, the zones they work in. But I think to try and stipulate it and be as prescriptive as Netflix is saying you need to be, I think is harsh and probably unworkable. Unworkable. Sam? Um, this is a subject that's extremely passionate uh, to me on a personal and a professional level. I think when the media sensationalizes something like the Netflix story, please go and look it up because it's so ridiculous, it's almost funny. But we have an industry with a really, really pro big problem with sexual harassment, a really big problem. And I'm seeing nods from people already in the audience. Uh, a recent survey on MeetingsNet, which is American, a US publication, 56% of female meeting execs have said they've been sexually harassed in a professional environment. We have a massive problem now. I don't believe it's up to the associations. I think it's up to every single one of us, organizers, venues, associations, media, to actually stop sensationalizing this and picking up on these stories and actually seeing how serious this is. How many people have a sexual harassment policy for their events? Okay, uh, for the podcast, one person has put their hand up in a very, very busy room. We have a really, really big challenge from, a, from this, from a, from a global perspective. And we need to start recognizing that there are tips that we can all do. We have to take this on from a leadership point of view, as I said, from a media point of view. And when we see things like these ridiculous Netflix rules and procedures, what it does is sensationalizes the, the minuscule part of this, but there's a really serious problem across the world, across society, but especially in our industry as well. And without com 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 making that commercial, there, there, there is obviously a moral in, um, point that we have to make, and it, and it is uncomfortable to be put in a position where you don't feel you're comfortable in. And there is also the commercial aspect of it as well. It, we, we do a huge amount of Christmas parties in Smart Group. 120,000 people come in November, December to our parties. We are getting um, warning sounds from mostly the American firms at the moment saying, we don't want unlimited drinks. We don't want to get necessarily 1,000 people in a room at 11.30 at night who've been drinking since 6.30 because something might happen. Quite rightly, you know, it, 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 people do get overexcited and, and overfamiliar. Um, and we are looking at that as a real weakness in our business plan going forward because it's going to get worse. It's always happened. It will always um, have been something we've been aware of and our event managers and our security are all very aware of it to make sure that people do feel comfortable in our venues. But if this is a problem that people are identifying now because it's much more apparent and much more talked about, then that is going to have a, a major impact on the way that people... So shouldn't you take responsibility as a venue for a set of policies so, you know, that this doesn't happen, so sexual harassment doesn't happen under the roofs of the venues, or we will stamp it out. We have someone, an event manager or a, a representative, who you can go to if you're at an event and you're being harassed or you feel uncomfortable, so that you've got a point. Should, should you take, yeah, your but, company take a responsibility alongside well, we, the yeah, organisers as we, well? I think we can put in place the fact that maybe unlimited drinks is, is going to be a thing of the past and it's, that, that's the thing that tips people over the edge and gets them overexcited. So yes, the, the product needs to change. The sort of safe zones, if you like, um, it, it's, it's hard. If you've got a thousand people standing in a room, all dancing, someone is going to try and get off with someone inappropriate at some point in that party. Are we monitoring that? Is that something that we're responsible for? Are we just giving them the opportunity to entertain themselves in our space and therefore it's their responsibility to make sure that their behaviour 
is appropriate. Um, yes, we can have more security who are more aware of it. We can have people on the lookout for people who might be looking a bit distressed. Um, yeah, and I think that is fundamentally something we should be doing. But it's, it's not all our responsibility. I guess a show of hands even. Who's kind of felt uncomfortable at any point at, uh, at work or at an event? On the back. And I guess, yeah, so I guess what, would be your, what would be your advice for, for people in that situation in the events world? How do you, how, you know, what, what, what should, what should I think for the first time ever, we have begun to create a forum where people are feeling slightly more comfortable speaking up. There's been nowhere for anyone to talk, nowhere to share, no one, nowhere to say, do you know what, that happened to me, and I feel that that was inappropriate. And it's not just at a Christmas party. It's not about somebody getting off with somebody else. This is happening at a conference. This is happening at exhibitions. This is happening when people haven't got smashed on too much unlimited Prosecco. This is actually a really serious problem sober as well as when people have had a drink. Yes, we're hearing more stories. And I think there's a few, few bits and pieces that we can do is we can share, we can talk to each other. I think as conference organizers, you know, we have event apps, we have technology. Um, and again, have a policy, but actually hold people accountable to that. It's no good having a policy if you're not going to push forward with it. Make sure that people understand that there are consequences to what might happen mm. and that it's just not acceptable at your event. And I think you can do that. It starts with leadership, but I think it needs everybody in, in the industry. There's a hashtag, interestingly, whether you, like the, whether you think it's cheesy or whether you don't, it's an interesting uh, thread and conversation for some knowledge and some discussion, which is hashtag meetings too. And this is where you know, some of the bigger organizations, PCMA as an association, big global meetings association, they've been producing a, a lot of data around this, looking at creating some draft uh, harassment, anti-harassment policies. So we've got that information. Hopefully, maybe we can share that on Event Lab for our organizers and our venues. We can certainly share that. And I guess the media as well has a role in, in, uh, in, in amplifying this. We, uh, we absolutely do. Uh, this is something that's very much on, on, on the agenda. We're going to be looking at more social issues now over the, over the next six months. Absolutely. This is obviously top of the list. And it's something that, of course, we have to take it seriously. Great. We're almost out of time. I don't know if anyone has any, any final thoughts on, on this or... Or any of the any of the issues raised? Okay, great. Uh, well, in that case, I will just say thank you very much uh, to the panel today. Uh, the Event Lab podcast. If you want to subscribe to it, eventlab.online. It's every fortnight, uh, similar similar conversation every fortnight. So do do subscribe. And otherwise, thank you very much all for listening. Thanks. Fantastic as ever. What an amazing podcast. Who does subscribe to the podcast? You really should. Hi. One, two, three. Come on. Event Lab podcast. It is amazing. Yeah, yeah. They're not used to being in the light. They usually record in a tiny little cramped studio all looking at each other. So at least they've got someone, people attractive to look at now. Oh, sorry. Are we, am I allowed to say that? I'm going to look at you for fun. That is that's too that, long. That, that, Five that, seconds that, is long, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It is quite a long time. It is. Thanks, guys. Well done. Thank you very much for listening to the Event Lab podcast. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. 
you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. And finally, you can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online.